นโมตัสสะบุคคะทัวรหัตโสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุคคะทัวรหัตโสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุคคะทัวรหัตโสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะThe Dhamma Chakapuatana Sutta that we've just chanted is the discourse that the Buddha gave, the first teaching he gave when he had figured out how he was going to share the benefit of his insight. And we know in the, the full month of Vaisaka, the full month of May, he arrived at his full, unshakable realization of reality, his enlightenment. And spent quite some time <clears throat> dwelling in the, the uh, consequential bliss of that realization. But then it started to occur to him: How is he going to pass this on? Because many lifetimes ago, the Buddha had made the vow, made the determination that he would do whatever it took, whatever effort was needed, to be able to arrive at the realization of that which was free from the suffering of birth, old age, sickness, and death. And then, at the age of 29, he redetermined this vow, having seen for himself the consequence of having cultivated great skill and enjoying himself in life. He had mastered all the arts and were clearly very intelligent, well educated, and married a, a lovely princess. And everything was looking bright, except for the fact that when he encountered old age, sickness, and death. He fell into despair and got quite depressed about the whole miserable ordeal that human beings seem to be stuck in. And actually, recognizing this is what happens, and the, the mythology around it, the story is related. And the tradition says that the Buddha asked his charioteer, "You know, is this really? Does this actually happen to everybody? I mean, is this really going to happen to me?" And he was told, "Yes, it's going to happen to you too. You're going to get old, get sick, and die." And the ugliness of it, contrasting to the beauty and the delight of his life, actually burst his bubble of of delusion. He was in denial for 29 years, and uh, he realised, "All oh, right, this is actually a raw deal. This being stuck in samsaric existence, this miserable affair of ignorance, is a terrible, horrendous ordeal." And then, seeing the samana, seeing the example of of a monk who A truth seeker, somebody who had forsaken the comforts and convenience of uh, the luxuries of the life of distraction, so as he could con- commit all his effort, become one-pointed in his effort to realize the solution, the solution to this miserable predicament, and that triggered this ancient vow, this ancient resolve that the Buddha had made many lifetimes ago to realize liberation for the welfare of all beings. So, when on the full month of uh, the full moon of of Vesaka, under the Bodhi tree, he did realize full liberation, full freedom from all ignorance, and the insight that arose. Um, of course, it didn't take long before the thought started to come into him. Well, how do I share this? How do I share this? He looked around and saw how miserable everybody was, and and uh, how they were creating their own misery. 
And uh, how do you share this benefit? And it seems that initially he was disinclined to talk about what he realised. And uh, because it's so obvious that people are just sunk in the swamp of ignorance, they're just creating suffering for themselves all the time and then blaming other people for it. So how can you tell somebody who's so thick what they're doing? And so he was positively disinclined to say anything about it. And I know I've heard from teachers of our own time in Thailand, and Lungta Mahabua uh, mentioned something along the same lines, that, that uh, from the time of enlightenment, the, the, it's, it's so glaringly obvious what people are doing to create their suffering, and yet they don't see it. And I say, well, really, they must be incredibly thick. People must be incredibly stupid to be doing what they're doing to make themselves suffer and not see it. And so there's a positive disinclination to even bother to try. However, as, as Lungta Mahabur pointed out, just the nature of Dhamma, the nature of enlightenment, though our heart is free from ignorance, is that compassion, the radiance of compassion, the warmth of, of human compassion starts to shine forth and an enlightened being can't help themselves, basically. Whenever anybody asks for help, whenever somebody's suffering and they ask for help, the enlightened being can't do anything other than do, help to the best of their ability. And so the Buddha's natural inclination was to ponder on how could I, you know, how could I help people? And, and, uh, and, and his uh, first thought was, I could help those teachers who helped me, you know, which is an interesting um, thought to consider. That you know, The Buddha didn't just say, well, those teachers, they were a bunch of no-hopers. They obviously... They didn't have the full story and forget about them. No, the first thought he had was, well, the person to help is those teachers who try to help me. And in our case, I think this is quite relevant, where as we hopefully progress in our practice and we're on to, you know, we've come across a, an authentic interpretation of the Buddha's teachings. We're on to a good wicket here. This is a really good fortunate circumstance we find ourselves in and we have all the support to deepen in our practice and hopefully we start to receive the benefits of it and we might reflect back on some of the earlier teachers that we lived with, the earlier teachings we received and and, uh, and then thought, well, he obviously didn't know what he was doing or she clearly didn't know what she was doing and just, what a no hope they were. Well, that's not the Buddha's example. The Buddha's example was so much gratitude towards his previous teachers that he wanted to help them first. And so even though some of the traditions we might have belonged to or some of the teachings we might have followed didn't take us as far as we wanted to go, that doesn't mean to say they were all no good. I know in my own case that I always had, I had quite a conflict for many years about Christianity, where although there was a lot about Christianity that I really disagreed with and did not go along with at all, there were things there that I actually felt very good about. And But... My mind wasn't subtle enough, wasn't clever enough to recognize that you can accept and appreciate that which is good in a teaching and reject that which is no good. Which, of course, is what the Buddha himself asked us, encouraged us to do. We don't just take a teaching, holus bolus, and on and just say, this is, I'll accept all of this because I like this teacher. You know, in, in modern uh, Californian parlance, it's called the halo effect where you find some spiritual teacher who happens to have some spiritual ability and they display a certain level of radiance and so then you just believe in everything they say. 
And so you, you give your distorted, disfigured, twisted, miserable ego over to this person and basically they've got you twisted around their little finger and you do everything they ask you to do. Well, that's the, the halo effect. It's not very wise and certainly not what the Buddha was encouraging. Not so many years ago, there were in California there were all sorts of gurus falling off their shelves and this teacher and that teacher being found to be getting up to all sorts of mischief and a lot of people were very disillusioned and heartbroken in fact uh, turned away from practice altogether well it's very regrettable you know, when, from the Buddhist perspective when he gave his teaching he asked people to listen and to consider the teaching, he didn't ask you to believe mm-hmm. he didn't ask you to grasp at what he said but he asked you to take it in listen to and consider and see does it work for yourself and so even I know for myself there was a a teacher in, uh, that when I was a monk my first year I used to read the teachings of, of Chogyung Trungpa, a Tibetan teacher in California and I found some of his teachings incredibly helpful and yet the guy was a drunk and uh, when he died eventually he passed on his lineage to another seriously misbehaving character who cut up all sorts of mischief and but that doesn't mean to say that everything he said was no good. In fact, much of what he said was very helpful. And so when we reflect back on our previous teachers, the encouragement the Buddha gave us to, is to have a sense of gratitude. Anybody who's taken us even one step along the path, we want to feel gratitude towards them. Well, anyway, when the Buddha got to thinking about his previous teachers, what he realized was that they'd all passed away and they weren't available to go and see them. So the next person that he thought about were his spiritual companions, those who had shared this adventure, the people who had walked the path with previously. They were all ascetics and they were very, very determined. They didn't know the realisation. They hadn't reached realisation. They weren't liberated, but they were very determined and very committed. And what traditionally in Pali is called the Panchavagi Bhikkhu, the Buddha's five companions. And they had abandoned the Buddha when... When the Buddha realized that his asceticism was basically killing him off, you know, he'd, he'd fasted on, given up food, given up water, given up breath, and he was nearly dead, something natural, some natural wisdom within him realized actually this is over the top, this is going too far. And so when he was offered, uh, offered some, uh, some breakfast to eat one day, uh, he decided to take it to get a little bit of strength back so that he can continue practicing and his five mates they abandoned him considered him a softy Panchawagi Samana they basically abandoned the Buddha and left him alone which wasn't a bad thing because then the Buddha wasn't distracted and also in that abandonment by your friends it's also an interesting image for us as we progress in our practice we all like to have friends we all like to feel supported and the sense of you know being you know accompanied on the path and sharing our difficulties and practice is difficult at times and when you're really suffering it, it is nice to have somebody that you can lean on or share your suffering with but really when it comes down to it when it really comes down to it we were born alone and we're going to die alone and when we're dying alone there's nobody else maybe there is somebody holding our hand but basically you're going to lose all sensation in your hand anyway you're not going to feel somebody holding your hand and when it really comes down to it, you're going to be totally alone. And so the Buddha actually being abandoned by his five friends was, was really a symbol of what, 
we really all need to do in practice. And not to throw out our good friends, the Buddha never rejected his friends, but when they left, he didn't complain about it. He said, okay, right, well now I just have to depend on my own resolve, my own interest, my own commitment to realise complete freedom for the welfare of all beings. And so that was actually one of the last motivations that the Buddha needed, that strengthening of resolve before he actually cracked it, before he actually broke through and dissolved all ignorance. So those were the next ones that he thought of. After he realised that his previous teachers weren't alive, he went to seek out his five friends, the Panchawagi Samana, and uh, he found them. And then uh, and he gave these teachings, and that's what this discourse is that we recited this evening, which is a very simple formula for how to value that which really matters in life. Another occasion later on in his life, the, the Buddha was speaking with a whole lot of monks, and, and he picked up a bunch of leaves from the floor of the forest, and he said, tell me, monks, which is greater, all the leaves and all the trees in this forest, or the leaves in my hand? And the monks replied, well, obviously, Lord, all the leaves and all the trees are much greater than those few leaves in your hand. And the Buddha replied, well, so it is. The truths of existence are much greater than what I've taught. I don't know if he had four leaves in his hands, but what he said, what I've taught you is the four noble truths. He says, that's all you need to pay attention to. There's lots of other fascinating things around, absolutely riveting truths that you could be investigating powers you could be developing, but is it going to free you from suffering? Not necessarily. But this is the most direct path to freedom from suffering. This is, if you want to understand how to really free yourself from your own suffering, this is what you need to pay attention to. And so that's why the Buddha lived the life of renunciation. He could have gone back. He was completely free. There was no question of him reverting to ignorance, no hint of greed, aversion, and delusion. It just wasn't possible in the Buddha's consciousness. He could have gone back to living the life of luxury, being a very comfortable, happy prince and uh, receiving lots of praise and appreciation and luxury and comfort and convenience, but he didn't because he knew that the life of renunciation, this symbolizes what's really necessary for, path, for the path of practice. Not that everybody has to become a renunciate, but that we do all need to let go of that which is not necessary. We all have habits of indulging in, in so many things that are extra, things that distract us from looking at what really matters. What really matters is that we're suffering. That's what really matters. I mean, if we weren't suffering, what's the problem? There's no problem. If we weren't suffering, there wouldn't be any problem. But the fact is, we're suffering most of the time, in some gross way or subtle way. I remember one evening at Wat Pong, and it was a full moon evening, and I think it was a full moon evening. We're all gathered together in the main Dhamma Hall, and... And Ajahn Chah climbed up on the Dhamma seat there and there's a huge crowd of monks and nuns and lay people, fast gathering there. And he started off his Dhamma talk by saying, he said, don't feel bad if you're suffering. He said, Everybody's suffering. I thought, oh, what a relief. I thought I was the only one that was having a bad time. Yeah. And the fact is, we, we like to pretend we're not suffering because that's the way of the world. That's what ignorance does. Ignorance the disease, the distortion, the disfigurement of consciousness, which the Buddha identified as awicca, or not knowing, or ignorance, See, this, makes us, this makes us, this causes us to actually think in distorted ways. You know, it's like if, you, if you've got, you know, if your eyesight, the lens in, you, in your eyes is distorted, you don't see straight. 
nor if you've got somebody else's glasses on, you can't see straight. You know, well, that's what ignorance does. We don't see straight. And so we run around pretending we're happy, when in fact we're not. You know, we're suffering in, in gross or subtle ways. And, but because we have developed this incredible habit of ignoring ignorance, you could talk, call ignorance as a thing, but you could also see ignorance as, a, as an activity. We're constantly ignoring reality. Suffering comes along, we turn away from the suffering. You, know, you, you see, you're walking along the road and you see a, a squashed rabbit on the road and you don't look at it, you don't want to look at it because you, you don't want to think about death. You, know, you get a pain and you take a painkiller because we don't want to think about pain. You, know, you make a mistake and you say the wrong thing and you upset somebody and, and do we actually stop and feel, oh, this is the consequence of heedlessness. I lost mindfulness, I said something that caused hurt to my best friend and they rejected me and now I've misunderstood and now I feel rejected and this is the pain, there's the cause, there's the effect. Do we do that or do we go to the fridge and get a pizza? (laughs) Or whatever you're allowed to get. Anything. The habit of distraction is the activity of denial which is the expression of our ignorance. Well, the Buddha cracked it. The Buddha saw through, dissolved through the power of his resolve, the effort of his commitment to the cultivation of the parami, the ten parami. He had the ingredients so that actually the power of ignorance was outshone by the power of wisdom and ignorance dissolved. And so from that place of complete, unobstructed, unhindered consciousness, he was able to see this is the most direct path to liberation. This is it, the Four Noble Truths. And so he articulated this there is the first thing to do is to pay attention to the symptom of your suffering, which is dukkha. This is this is first we've got to direct our attention towards dukkha. And this is what we were just chanting. This is the first noble truth: is to pay attention to dukkha. The second thing to pay attention to is there's a cause to this. This is not just an accident. This is not just a bad deal. You know, this is not just because the planets were aligned in a bad way when you were born, or because. You know, your mother didn't look after you enough or you didn't have a good relationship with your father or, or you didn't have a good diet during your years of growing up. It's not just an unfortunate accident that we're suffering. There's a physical, there's a, there's a, a, there's a, a consciousness condition which brings about suffering. So that's the cause of suffering. And the third point that the, the Buddha identified was that there's a complete ending to this. this is a, there is a reality which he called Niroda Satya, Niroda Satya, there is this reality called the complete cessation of suffering, which he realized. And the path to that state of complete realization of the freedom from suffering is what he called the Eightfold Path. And that's again what we were just chanting the, the, uh, the eight factors, the Eightfold Path. And so then again, the, this discourse went on for quite a while because the Buddha got very refined into going into explaining each of these points. And so the discourse is worth considering until we really take this, we really internalize this pattern. That's why you know, the, the, all the teachings the Buddha gave, there's the three stages. There's pariyati, patipati, patiwedi. Pariyati is the theory. Yeah? We, we study the theory. So this is the theory. This is the pattern. This is, the, this is the, you know, what we, we've got to know about reality. This is not reality. That's like the books in that cabinet back there, those Tripitaka books. That's not Dhamma. That's about Dhamma. It's just like this is not the Buddha. This is a symbol for the Buddha. All the words, including the sutta we just 
just chanted. That's not really the Dhamma. The real Dhamma, that's the reality. That's what the Buddha saw. The teachings that we need to learn, that's Pariyati Dhamma. That's 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 an approximation of Dhamma. So we need that first. We read it, we reflect on it, we chant it, we take it in over and over. We have four noble truths, four noble truths. And so suffering, the cause of suffering, freedom from suffering, the path leading to freedom from suffering. Until we've got the theory there. And what that does, what the theory does, pariyati, when we then apply it in our everyday life, that's patipati dhamma. That's where we're actually applying it, that's practice. And what that means is that when suffering comes to us, Instead of just defaulting to our habits of, of born out of denial, the habits of ignorance, and going to the fridge and getting a pizza or putting on some music, anything to make ourselves feel good again and get over the bad feeling, instead of just defaulting to our habit of ignorance, what we do is we turn the light of attention directly to that very place, that very place where suffering is arising, in the moment that it's happening. And that's why we practice. That's why we do all these hours of meditation. You know, sitting, 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 so boring, so tedious, so painful. What are we doing it for? It's so as to actually undo the habit of denial. It's hard work. You know, denial is a serious disease. You know, ignorance is, is, a really, is really bad news. And how are we going to undo this? How are we going to reverse this condition? Well, we have to generate energy. And so that's what we're sitting Whatever the meditation object is, whether it's meditating on the breath, meditating on the heart of loving kindness, body posture, the sound of silence, whatever the object of meditation is, the mind wanders and we come back. The mind wanders and we come back. Oh, but it's so much more fun to think about this and to think about that. Say, yeah, but does it do any good? (laughs) No. Well, it might help you relax. Actually, letting the mind wander can be relaxation. But as we were discussing the other day, relaxation is only the very first stage of meditation. That's not even the second stage, not to mention the third stage, which is the point of meditation, which is investigational, transforming the ignorance into wisdom and compassion. So we make this effort over and over again, come back over and over again. It doesn't matter how many times we make the determination. It doesn't matter how many times the mind wanders, we're going to come back again. Just like a mother with a child. The mother's given birth to this child, and every other child, well, nearly every other child that's been born has learned to walk. But this one here, all it does is crawl. And you think, is this thing ever going to learn to walk? You know, when's this blob of protoplasm ever going to get to walk like a human being? Well, a mother doesn't think like that because she trusts. It's in the nature. It's in the nature of the child to learn to walk. She trusts. She has confidence. She has faith in the child's ability to learn to walk. But to support that, she holds the child. The child falls over. She gets it up again. She holds the child. The child falls over. It doesn't matter how many times this child falls over. She doesn't give up on it. She never gives up on it with a heart of loving kindness and with faith and confidence in the nature of the child. She lifts it up and teaches it. Well, likewise, with our hearts and our conscience, it doesn't matter how many times the mind wanders, with the same kind of loving kindness, the same trust and confidence, it's in the nature of the heart to want to be free from suffering. It's, it's deep within us. It's like, it's like a plant, like that bamboo down there growing in the tarmac. I don't know if you noticed it. We've got this really nice tarmac on the car park down there at Kusla House. Really nice, top-quality, thick tarmac. But you noticed that the other day, the bamboo was growing right up through it. Because it's in the nature of the bamboo to seek the light, to grow up through it. It doesn't matter how thick that tarmac was, the bamboo grew right up through it. It's not intimidated by that darkness. And by the apparent obstruction 
of the tarmac. Well, likewise, we've got to trust in our true hearts and not be intimidated by the apparent darkness and obstruction of the heedless habits of mind. It doesn't matter how long those heedless habits have been there. It doesn't matter how long a room has been dark. As soon as you turn a light on, the darkness is gone. Just one moment, one light bulb transforms eons of darkness. And likewise, the Buddha said, just one moment of insight totally transforms eons of ignorance. So we don't want to be put off by the apparent interminable suffering. Say, well, that's the way it appears to be. We follow the Buddha's examples and all the great teachers like Lumpur Cha and the great teachers before us, and we follow their example and just keep practicing. It doesn't matter how often the mind wanders, we come back and begin again. And what we're doing is we're generating a force, a steadiness, so that one day, one day we're going to see at the moment that we're doing what we're doing that's creating the suffering. And then at that moment where we see what we're doing that's creating the suffering, we can see what we need to do to stop creating the suffering. But we don't see that straight away. The mind is wandering here, wandering there, and it's such mediocre quality of mindfulness and mediocre restraint and mediocre concentration and steadiness and focus. The mind is all over the place, so we're not there quick enough. We don't see soon enough. Mm-hmm. Now we might think that we understand our minds but when you really make the effort to bring the mind back bring the mind back to steady the mind down be quiet, be calm be contented, be patient mm-hmm. and little by little we learn what it's like to have a clear, focused mind that we can read that we can really understand we can see, oh, this is what's going on in our minds oh, I thought I knew what was going on I didn't know anything yeah, we don't know anything it's like some years ago when I was living down in Devon, about, um, about 20-something years ago now, Ajahn Chandapala and I were starting the Devon Vihara. And, um, and uh, I went for a walk from Plymouth to Axminster, right along the south coast of Devon, all the way with Anagarika Jürgen, as he was then, and now Ajahn Kemasiri, as he is. And so we walked for the full length of the coast of Devon. I'd been up and down... Axminster Plymouth, Axminster Plymouth, Axminster Plymouth, hundreds of times. I'd done the trip many times. Went to see the Buddhist group there and thought I knew Devon. I thought I knew Devon because I'd been backwards and forwards, up and down, up and down, many, many times. But when I slowed down and I actually walked from Axminster to, when I walked from Plymouth to Axminster, I realised a totally different, had a completely different experience of Devon. When you start to see the wildflowers and the and on the walking along the beach and getting to know the, the, the tide and, and how to cross the estuaries and, and walking through the little coastal villages is a completely different experience of Devon. Nothing like zooming up and down on the motorway. So our everyday consciousness is like zooming up and down on the motorway. We don't really see much. We see a few things, but not very much. So the Buddha encourages us to really slow the mind down, have a regular concentration practice, a regular cultivation of mindfulness and restraint in daily life until one day we see at the moment there's an irritating stimulus and we realise at that moment we've got a choice. We've got a choice. We can move and react according to that stimulus or we can just watch. If we move and we react, then we cling to it. And we try to get rid of it. We try to get rid of that 
irritating stimulus that's just, that's just obstructed my, my peace and calm. So how do I get rid of it? And we just start thinking about it, start doing whatever we can to get rid of it. Yeah. If we hadn't moved, we just sit and watch, and it's just a sound, or it's just a sight, or it's just a smell, or it's just a taste, or it's just a touch, or it's just an idea. It's just an impression. It's just an impression in consciousness. But we can sit there still and see the impression arise and pass away. And at that point, you see in a different way. You realize you've got a choice. We've got a choice to suffer or not suffer. And this is the great blessing of the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha didn't give us something to believe in. He gave us something to do, that we can do until we see the power we have to create our own suffering. When we see the power we have to create our own suffering, at that point we also get a sense. It doesn't all disappear straight away, but we get a sense of what we can do to be free from suffering. And so now we're moving in the direction of the third noble truth. Yeah. So the first noble truth is we actually need to really discipline attention to go against the habit of avoidance, the habit of ignoring suffering. You know, we start to get old and arthritis and say, well, you know, this is how it is. This is what happens. Yeah. When Kitty Saro was in hospital once, we were junior monks together in Thailand, and Kitty Saro was very, very sick in hospital and terribly ill. And Ajahn Chah came in to see him in the hospital there and uh, talking to her, and he says, you know, when I'm dying, I'm just going to laugh. I'm just going to smile. There's nothing to cry about. There's nothing to worry about when you're dying. Normally, when we're sick, we get afraid, we get worried, we think, oh, what's happening to me? Well, of course, if we get a terminal prognosis, and, uh, you know, that is very threatening. But that's not a problem. That's not something going wrong. If we understand the theory of the Four Noble Truths, we've really taken and internalized the Pariyati level of practice. We've really internalized this formula the Buddha gave. This is not a, a sign of something to get angry, upset about. This is something to get interested in. Interested in the sufferings. Oh, yeah, wow. Look at me shaking. I'm really intim- and intimidated by that prognosis I got. Or feeling threatened with loss. You know, if the, if the business looks like it's going to fail or... Or you're not going to, in our case at the moment, you know, suppose that the, the planning authority threatened to reject our application for plan. I'm really looking forward to having cooties down there. We've got this lovely property down there now, 10 acres and a gorgeous lake, and, and we've got these beautiful cooties. We need the cooties. We need the space. It's a great thing to do. We really want to put these cooties down there, and all we need is those nice people over in Hexham to say yes. That's all we need. And so while I'm mentioning it, any of you want to dedicate merit to the planning authority in Hexham, that's a good idea. But if I get a hint that they're going to reject us, well, I'm going to feel something. I expect I'm going to feel something, yeah, round about here, <laughs> in my solar plexus, you know, feeling rejected, you know, not getting what you want. And the, the Buddha taught, Dukkha has got a cause. It's not an accident. There's a cause for it. So we train ourselves to look first to not turn away from the dukkha. Don't go for the pizza. Don't go for the music immediately. Maybe later on it's all right, but not immediately. Overcome that habit, habitual of avoidance, habit of avoidance. Come back and say, this is dukkha, first noble truth. That's great. That's great to see. Get really interested in it. And the cause of it, what is it? Where is this coming from? This is worth looking at. You know, people can talk about how can I change the political system on the planet or... The environment, the environment's going down the tube and, 
And, you know, the, 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 the way the Europeans manipulate the economy so to keep all those people in Africa poor and so on, it is. It's, it's terrible. It's a disaster. It is horrible. It is unsuitable. It is unbecoming for human beings to behave that way. But getting terribly interested in that, is that really going to solve things? We can be sort of interested in those things, but if the priority, if we listen to the Buddha's teaching, the priority needs to be to get to the core issue. The core issue of the suffering is greed, aversion, and delusion. Why do you think all those, or us Europeans, behave in the way we do? Why do we think the world is so unjust and so unfair? There are more people on the planet now dying from obesity than there are dying from starvation. Now, isn't that obscene? Why is it that way? Greed, aversion, and delusion. So if our commitment, if our interest is in freeing ourselves from greed, aversion, and delusion, then we're addressing the core issue. And dignity comes from that. Confidence comes from that. Strength of heart comes from that. And quite rightly so. So the first noble truth, the second noble truth, being interested in the cause of suffering, doing whatever we need to do to bring our minds to that clarity, that simplicity, letting go of the extra things in our life, letting go of the things that are just not necessary for the sake of interest in reality and trusting in what the Buddha articulated as the third noble truth, that it is possible. That's what we have confidence in as Buddhists. That's what we have confidence in as Buddhists. We don't necessarily believe in the Buddha. We trust the Buddha. We have confidence in the Buddha's realisation. But we don't believe in the Buddha. We don't you know, worship the Buddha and, and, and as if the Buddha is going to save us. And the Buddha said, he said, all I can do is point the way. And as I was saying the other day, if we spend our time looking at the Buddha's finger, well then that's pretty stupid, isn't it? And the Buddha's busy pointing the way, so this is the way, this is the way, and we're looking at the Buddha's finger. That's what animals do. But human beings have the capacity to, to consider, why is the Buddha pointing in that direction? Oh, right, because he went in that direction and he realised the freedom from suffering, so we need to go in that direction as well. So not only did he, he say, well, it's possible, but he said also there are conditions that you can cultivate that take you in that direction. So the, the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path, which he said that the insight into the freedom from suffering expresses itself in this way. And so the Buddha spelled these out, the, the eight factors of the, the Noble Eightfold Path. And, and it's not the case that we have to understand point one and then point two and point three. You know, we could imagine it goes like that, but it doesn't go like that. Basically, it's like, it's like if you like, a, a spectrum. It's like a spectrum of the, you know, the, all the different elements, the different colours, the different tones, the different dimensions. This path is a multidimensional path. The first one, though, is a priority, and that's the, 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 what, the, what we were just chanting, samaditi a right view or clear seeing. That if that's not in place, then unfortunately, however much effort we might make in the other areas, then they're not really going to do the business. We're not really going to reap the benefit of our good efforts. So it is important that we study the first factor of the Eightfold Path, right understanding, right view, trusting in the law of karma, trusting the law of the teachings on rebirth. rebirth. Again, not necessarily believing these things, but not disbelieving in them. That's the point. You know, if you can't believe in the teachings on rebirth, you don't have to pretend you do when you can't. You know, like Ajahn Santajito when he came to see Ajahn Chah once and said, oh, I just can't buy all this rebirth business. And 
You know, Ajahn, Ajahn Santichitta was a, a highly educated mathematician from New York, a very brainy fellow and you know, Jewish fellow, and his, his, he was very committed to his thoughts. And uh, when he went to see Ajahn Chah, but this Ajahn Chah says, oh, don't worry, he says, put it on the back burner and come back and we'll talk about it in five years' time. He didn't say, you've got to believe in rebirth, you know, like some of these Sri Lankan grandmas that come and see me. You've got to tell my son to believe in rebirth, you know. They sent their son off to a Christian school and so the son turned out not believing in rebirth and, and so granny thinks that the son's going to go to hell. And, and so they want to come and see me. You tell my son to believe in rebirth, otherwise he's going to go to hell. And I, I say, well, you know, it doesn't quite work like that. You know, the Buddha didn't tell us to believe in things blindly. But what he did say was don't disbelieve because if you go disbelieving like some of these super brainy uh, atheists who are around at the moment you know, preaching a vehicle of disbelief they don't know a lot of it. It's very unscientific a lot of the philosophy that they're promoting at the moment. Fundamentalist atheists promoting disbelief. Fundamentalist disbelief system. The Buddha pointed out that heedlessly believing, heedlessly disbelieving Neither way is going to take us to realization. There are certain beliefs, he said, which accord with reality, which approximate reality, which is good if you can go along with. But even if you have trouble going along with them, so long as you don't disbelieve them, because that comes wrong view. So positively disbelieving in the law of karma, positively disbelieving in the law of rebirth, is really unhelpful, really unwholesome, really unskillful, and to be avoided. If we don't know, well, what we do is just say, well, the truth is, I don't know. I don't know about the law of rebirth. I mean, I can't, I can't see in past lives or future lives, but I really trust in it. I have serious confidence in the law of rebirth. That's one reason why I work so hard to get Buddhist monasteries developed in Britain. I want to come back and be a monk again in this monastery. And I don't want to just get reborn as one of those sheep out there. That wouldn't be much fun. <laughs> I want to come back as a a Buddhist monk, and live in this monastery again. I trust in these teachings, but that doesn't mean to say that if somebody else comes along and says, oh, you're a complete wally, who believes in that kind of hogwash? You say, well, okay, you know, I'm sorry for you, but all the teachings on karma. You know, even in the time of the Buddha, you know, when people would say, well, look, such and such a person, you know, they seem to be getting away with being a bit naughty and <clears throat> not having consequences, and the Buddha was fully aware of this. He, not everybody can see the consequences of, of your karma. Talking to Venerable Ananda once and about the, the law of karma and asking Ananda if he understood it. And he said, be very careful, Ananda. This is very complex. The law of karma is very, very complex. Don't think it's easy to understand. So if we don't understand it or necessarily com- feel com- completely convinced by it, well, that's all right. You know, what's called for is a little humility, which... Of course, we over-educated, excessively left-brained Westerners don't ter- do terribly well. But a little bit of humility means, well, actually, I just don't know for sure. But the Buddha seemed to have a few things together. I mean, you know, here we are 2,600 years and two months after his enlightenment, and there's zillions of people all around the world have been going along with his teachings and realizing the benefit of it. Great beings that we might have met ourselves like Lumpur Char or Lumpur Liam or Lumpur Nek who just came to visit us, these great beings have realized the benefit for themselves. You know, these characters, you look at them, I mean, see how cool they are. But they didn't get upset. You know, you said, watch Ajahn Char in all sorts of situations, tempted by wealth, 
you know, posh people from Bangkok coming up and offering him this and offering him that, and or irritating, frustrating people, you know, senior monks that people come along and try to intimidate them, accuse them of parajika offences, and trying to get them to disrobe. And you think, oh, that's all right, you know, that's yours. Just you know, you want to make that accusation, that's yours. That's yours. Can we do that? Probably not. Yeah. Why not? Because we don't have what the Buddha had. We don't have what Ajahn Chah had. We don't have the realization. What we have is still the habit of ignorance, the habit of denial, which means that when suffering comes to it, we avoid it. We'll do anything but look at it, look at the cause with interest and say, what am I doing in this moment that's creating suffering? Our habit of ignorance is so strong that we find we're going to make a special effort to do that. Well, that's fortunately why the Buddha developed the Sangha monks and nuns to be an example and to encourage us, to encourage each other those of us that live in the monastic community help each other and those who live in the lay life have the opportunity to come and visit and see the example of well-practiced monks and nuns and, and use this as an encouragement and say, oh right, yeah, there is this eightfold path right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration so there are these factors of the eightfold path that we need to Listen to the Buddha's teachings on it and say, well, how does this apply to me? You know, right livelihood. You know, I hear a lot of people, they don't, they don't want to work to make money because they think there's something wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with money. Money is just energy, just a symbol for energy. Yeah, money is just, it's how human beings have organized themselves to interact. You know, it's a symbol for how much work you do. It's also a symbol for your good karma or for your lack of it. It's a symbol for your skillfulness. And so, okay, so if you want to, you don't want to have anything to do with money, that's all right. Well, then you live the renunciate life as a monk or a nun. You give up all money. You give up a right to express an opinion on how taxes are used because if you're not paying taxes, you should be careful what you're doing, telling the government what to do because they're stewarding the money of the householders who create them, generate the money, and, and it needs to be used wisely and skillfully. But if you're a householder, well, then you've got a responsibility to, to make money just enough to benefit yourself and benefit others. Well, you don't have to be afraid of money. Money is not bad. Or precepts, you know, right action and right speech. You know, well, I don't want to be bothered with that boring level of practice. I want to get on to the, you know, I want to get on to the samma samadhi, samma ditti. I want a real insight. I want to see clearly. I want some powers well, that could just be ignorance manifesting itself as greed. You know, it's more subtle than you know, wanting to stuff yourself with a pizza, that's true, but it's, <laughs> but it's nothing. It's called upakilesa. It's not the gross old yarp kile. It's not just coarse kilesa, but it's upakilesa, refined kilesas, subtle defilements, wanting to have insight when what's called for is actually can it be contented with just bringing the mind back to the breath, beginning again. However many times I fail with my action of body and speech and mind, however many times I fail, I'm contented to simply begin again. Whatever it takes, I'm going to simply begin again. And get instead of getting caught up in the habits of proliferation, the habits of avoidance, the habits of ignorance. So on this occasion of uh, remembering, reflecting on the occasion when the Buddha delivered his first discourse. I hope these
thoughts, his uh, considerations on the four noble truths will be of some benefit in your practice. Thank you for your rights for your attention. Thank you. Thank you.